Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read chapter 1 with just brief explanation, just to give you a a bit more of a a refresher, because it's been a few weeks since we've looked at the book. And then we're going to begin our in-depth study of chapter 2. We want to take an in-depth approach to the Word of God, to to be a strong disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ, to know His Word, to be encouraged to live it out. Uh, one 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 of the... the disciplines in the Christian life that over and over again the Scripture calls us to is to meditate on the Word, to think deeply about what the Word of God says. We're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, as we're about to begin, let me remind you of an example I gave when we first started this study. It's an example of a man named John Mackay. John Mackay would later become the president of Princeton Seminary. And he was converted at the age of 14 by reading the book of Ephesians. And in in recounting his conversion, this is what he said. I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. That in reading the book of Ephesians, hopefully you'll see a new world. What God has done for us who are in Christ. And then when we look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that through Christ you'll recognize that's how you've been made alive if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Or that you'll recognize it's in Christ that you must be made alive. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an opening introduction. Then in the next verses, essentially what we have is a praise. Uh, There's a lot of praises in the Bible. A lot of the the Psalms are songs of praise. And here we have a, a praise to God. And it's a praise to God based on what God has done for us in, in salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. That's the praise to God. And then chapter 1 concludes with a prayer. So there's this praise to God about the blessings God has given us in Christ. It's in, it's in him, it's in Christ, that these blessings for God come to us. And then he ends the chapter with a prayer. It's a prayer of intercession. He's praying for believers primarily that will understand these things. So if you wonder, what should I pray for other Christians? Here's a good example. What can I pray? What is something good to pray? How to pray? 
Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ before he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. And then in chapter 2, he turns to talk about us. Those of us who are in Christ and what our spiritual state was before salvation. And that's going to be our focus this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of man, my, mankind. Notice this begins with the word and, and you, and you. Well, the word and means it's connected to what came before. What came before was this amazing statement about the transcendence of Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, he, he makes these just astounding statements about the transcendence of Jesus Christ. He's head of the church. God has put all things under his feet. He fills all in all. And then, and you. What this does is it contrasts us with the gravity and glory of Jesus Christ which is eventually, I'm going to try to show you, is really the main point of this passage. Why does Paul here go to extremes to describe the depth of our sinfulness before Jesus Christ? That's, that's one of the questions you want to come to this passage with. And, and the answer is to magnify Jesus Christ. That the depth of our sin magnifies Jesus. It shows, furthermore, how great he is. That's what the end of chapter 1 is about. It's about his transcendence, and then it turns it to us and you, and it's going to describe what we were before we were in Christ. And you were. Praise God, this is past tense. He's writing to faithful Christians. He's writing to a church. And you were. Praise God for the church, for those who are in Christ. What we're going to talk about this morning is past tense. But it's still reality. One of the amazing things about the Bible is this is a book that reveals God. It tells us about who God is. It tells us about what God has done. But this book also reveals truth about us. And as it's wise and right to know about God, isn't it helpful to also know about ourselves? And that's what this passage here reveals. It reveals powerful truth about what we were before Jesus Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That we were dead. Look at how he begins describing the spiritual realities that characterized us before Christ. It shows us how important Christ is. Before him, we were dead. We were dead. This probably goes back to essentially the introduction of sin in the Bible. Where one of the consequences of sin, when God warns Adam, he says to Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And when Adam sinned against God, 
He spiritually died, which would lead to his physical death. And thus the spiritual death of all people and the physical death of all people. You were dead. To, to be dead means to be devoid of life. It means to be unresponsive. Dead in trespasses and sins. See, there's the effect of sin. It brings about death. Death. Now, this very clear statement corrects. It contradicts. And it corrects a lot of, a, many of the wrong views about human nature and humanity in the world. There's a lot of, even spiritual people, even Christians have ideas about man that are, I believe, corrected by this. So one of the, one of the things the Bible does for us Christians, it corrects us. The, the right understanding of man before Christ is that he's dead in trespasses and sins. He's unresponsive. He's devoid of life. And, and you hear people, even sat, some Christians talk about people who are without Christ, speak of them just as if they're sick. But, but friends, you don't give medicine to a corpse. Medicine won't help a corpse. Or there's this characterization of mankind in general that, that essentially he's just weak, which obviously is true of all Christians. We need strength from God. But man, there's, there's a far more serious and severe reality about mankind than he's just weak. Again, you don't give vitamins to a corpse. Vitamins are not going to help someone who's dead. Or this common imagery that's used of a person drowning. You know what the, the imagery in the Bible of a person drowning is? It's of a believer in Psalm 42. Believers are drowning. And we need God's help to stay afloat. And we need one another to give us hope. We need the Word of God. We need to to remind ourselves of the Word of God. No, people who are without Christ are dead. They're not just floundering out there. They're dead. There's not any degrees of death. This is why when the Bible speaks of the good news of the gospel, and that's one of the, one of the things I want to do this morning is we walk through this picture of what we were without Christ to talk about the good news of the gospel. You know why the gospel is good news? Because it gives life. And this is why all through your New Testament, there's this emphasis on life. And, and what Jesus did brings life. Jesus talks about this over and over again. In John's Gospel, John chapter 6, where he's addressing essentially people who appear to be following him but really aren't. They're essentially, this is the, the chapter where they, they're there for the meal, they're there for the miraculous feeding, but they're not really following Jesus. And Jesus talks to them about life over and over again. And he says in John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. So always the most pressing question, are you trusting Jesus? That's how you have life. What, a, what an amazing promise from God that whoever believes in him has life. In John chapter 10, he's addressing primarily the religious leaders, the hypocritical leaders of Israel. Listen to what he says in John 10 and verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He's using here the imagery of the, the shepherd and the sheep. And of course, there, were, there are thieves that want to come and steal, steal and kill the sheep. But look at what the Son of God comes to do in John 10, 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's a need for life because of spiritual death. So we were dead. We also once walked, verse 2. Interesting, isn't it? These analogies, you're dead, but these people are walking in verse 2. 
in which you once walked. Notice again, it's past tense. To walk is essentially the character of your life, how you lived. Well, how did we live in verse 2? Following the course of this world. The idea of the world is essentially the evil world system that is in place. The, the, the establishment of greed. The establishment of, of abuse of human beings all over the planet and all through our history. This is the world. It's an evil system that, that promotes sinfulness. And essentially it's just life devoid of God. Life apart from God. That's the world. Hatred. Life apart from God. That's the world. And he says, we all once followed that course. The course, the, notice the word course. It's a path. One of the analogies in the New Testament of the Christian life is a path. A way you live. A way you, a way you walk. And we were following the world. And furthermore, it gets worse, following the prince of the power of the air. I think that's a reference to the devil. But let's break down those words in that title. First of all, the prince. This is the word arche. It can be translated ruler. It's not the word Lord. Jesus is Lord. But it is wor- it's a word for one who has strong authority. Prince of the power. The word power is the word for authority. It means the ability to do things. The ability to do things. You understand God has given the devil a level of authority in the world and on earth. You see this in, in, in the book of Job. The devil has, essentially whatever he does, he has to receive permission from the sovereign God to do. But God has given him permission to, to be active and at work in this world. This is why when Jesus is tempted, and one of the things the devil promises Jesus is the kingdoms of this world. That is something within his power to grant, I believe. I think it's a genuine, real temptation. That all this world system that the devil is exercising authority in, he'll just hand it over to the Son of God. He's the prince of the power of the air. The air is the idea that this is a spiritual world. There is an invisible, unseen world. This is what the Bible refers to as the air, and its power is ruled by the devil. It's the prince of the power of the air. Notice what else it says there about him, the spirit. The devil is a spirit. He is a non-physical being. He is a spirit, and he is at work. Notice, he is now at work. The word work there is the, the word for energy. He gives energy to the sons of disobedience. That's where they're energized from. They're not motivated by the Bible or the Holy Spirit. They're motivated by this spirit. This spirit is, notice, at work energizing. The devil is active in the world. The devil is active in people and through people. This is how he operates. And this is is essentially what characterized all of us. We were characterized as sons of disobedience. If you go over to Ephesians chapter 6, you get a little bit more insight into this idea where we talk about how Christians are to resist and stand against the powers and work of the devil. Ephesians chapter 6, look at verses 11 and 12. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So notice here we're talking about the devil and look at how he's described in the next verse. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So essentially our struggle is not against people. It's not our struggle, our fight is not against the the people in this world. Our struggle and our fight is against the spirit that energizes those people, namely the devil. This is why we shouldn't hate people for the way they act and what they do. In fact, we should just expect it. 
What do you expect? How do you expect the world to behave? Under the, the control and power of the devil. That's why we don't hate people for committing horrible sins. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The idea of the heavenly places is the air. The devil has power there. We were once part of that. Verse 3. This is the amazing work of Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So friends, in, in following Jesus, we leave the path of the world. We leave the following of the devil. And we follow Jesus Christ. We now follow another. And, and we follow him on a straight and narrow path that leads where? It leads to life. We're on a different path, praise God, because of the gospel. If you're not on that path today, you should turn to Jesus Christ. You should run to him. God, Jesus is merciful. He'll forgive, he forgives us of all of our sins. I, I have many, many sins. And Jesus forgives us all. Praise the Lord. And then we walk on a path following him and strive to live for him. Ordered by his word. Encouraged by his people. Verse 3, more information about what we once were. Uh, see, Paul really wants to paint this dark picture of what we were. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. See, the word lived there literally means to dwell somewhere. This, is, this was our home. This was our dwelling, the course of the world, the, the sway of the devil. This is where we dwelt before Christ. In the passions of our flesh, or lusts, if you prefer the older translation, which I prefer actually. But notice it's plural. It's lusts of the flesh, passions of our flesh. Carrying out, so notice, notice our, our sinfulness is, is active, it's walking, it's living, it's carrying out. The lusts, again, same word, of the body and the mind. And notice how that's described. Carrying out the lusts of the body and the mind, that there are fleshly lusts, and you know, you meet some people sometimes that will make the claim, well, you know, I don't do immoral things. And by immoral, they mean essentially, you know, in this neighborhood, sometimes we have people that like to break into cars and steal stuff out of your car. These very unhelpful people who come at 3 a.m. and they check to see if your doors are open, and if they are, they rifle through your vehicle. To me, it's just kind of funny when they go through our vehicles because there's, who knows what they'll find. Um, Nothing valuable. <laughs> it's totally a waste of their time to search our cars. <laughs> but they do it anyway. They do it anyway. That's, that, that, people say, well, I'm not immoral. I don't do those kind of things. You know, I don't, I don't cheat on my spouse. I'm not a perpetual liar. And so in their view, they're, they're moral because they don't do all these things. But notice this also says it's the, the lust of the body and of the mind. Well, what about how you think? Are you arrogant? Are you covetous? Have you ever coveted? Have you ever, have you ever conceived of some, an evil plan or plot? Friends, lusts are also abiding in the mind, not only carried out in the flesh. Uh, C.S. Lewis, my favorite work of C.S. Lewis is a book called The Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape, it's a great piece of literature. Uh, and essentially in The Screwtape Letters, it's essentially a, it's full of letters, and the letters are written from the perspective of one demon written to another demon about how we can tempt Christians to sin. 
So the, the purpose and hope of the book is to help Christians understand, at least in C.S. Lewis's mind, how Christians are tempted and how Christians struggle against the wiles of the devil, the strategies of the devil. And there's this one, there's this one letter where the demons are talking about how they're going to deal with this nice businessman. He's a nice businessman. People like him. He's an upright citizen. People look up to this guy. He treats his employees well. And essentially, the, the, the demonic strategy for this nice businessman is keep him lost in his niceness. Because the reality was, the spiritual reality was, just because the man behaves nice does not mean he's right with Jesus Christ. It's kind of like if you want to go a little bit older than C.S. Lewis, and actually I would say much more highly recommended. John Bunyan wrote a little story called The Life and Death of Mr. Badman. You know, Bunyan likes these funny, clear analogies. The Life and Death of Mr. Badman. And guess who Mr. Badman is? He's a very religious man. He's in church every Sunday. He gives money to the church. He supports church things. That doesn't mean he's saved. That doesn't mean he's in Christ. He can be Mr. Badman and be there every Sunday. It's like Billy Sunday said, just because you going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you a car. There are sins of the body and the mind. And notice what we were the last, the strongest statement of all this. Now, if dead weren't strong enough, the last statement's actually the strongest. By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see again an emphasis on the universality of this reality. By nature, children of wrath. What does it mean by nature? It means by the bare reality of what you are. By nature. By nature, children of wrath. Wrath comes from God because of sin. By nature, this is what we, what we were. So friends, our nature had to be changed by God's power. And it was by the grace of God. But by nature, children of wrath, as a fish is to water, that's a fish's nature. He's a creature of the water. So a man is to sin. So a man is to being under the wrath of God. As a fish's nature is to live in the water, a man's nature is to be under the wrath of God. This is just the reality of mankind as presented in the Word of God. By nature, a children of wrath. One of the, one of the great things about living in South Mississippi um, is, is the amazing uh, variety of birds that we get. So I'm a bird watcher because I used to be a deer hunter. You know, if you're going to deer hunt and spend all day in a tree stand, you've got to learn to watch birds and sometimes talk to them. And not too loud, though. But South Mississippi is a great place for birds. Awesome birds here. But do you know the eastern bluebird? To me, one of the most beautiful birds is the eastern bluebird. He is not going to come to your bird feeder unless, of course, you put worms in there. You know why the eastern bluebird won't come to your bird feeder if you're feeding seed? He doesn't eat it. In fact, he won't eat it. The eastern bluebird won't eat that. Just kind of like a vulture, a scavenger bird. If you found a, a scavenger bird, like a vulture, along the side of the road, you know these creatures that have the funny legs and the long neck, black. Some people think they're kind of scary. They're just one of God's creations. But you find this scavenger bird. And, and let's say he's starving and he's hungry. And you have some bread and you try to give him some bread. He's not going to eat grain. It's not his nature. It's not, it's not what he is. 
He's a carrion eater. It's what we are by nature, what we were by nature, children of wrath. Wrath, of course, is the expression of God's anger on sinners. You know, the reality is because God is righteous, he is not and cannot be indifferent towards sin, toward this reality. And you understand this. In our flawed righteousness, we recognize we're not going to be indifferent against evil, unless, of course, you're maybe uh, pathological. But like the people who break into my cars, let's say they break into one of the senior adult ladies' cars who's 80 years old and they steal all our stuff. What is your reaction to that? That's wrong. I'd like to deal with that dude or lady or whoever did it. Or, or you read these horrible stories about the people that break into the homes of senior adults and maybe steal their stuff or abuse them. What is the response to that? You see, righteousness is not indifferent toward evil or wrongdoing. And you know what? Neither is love. Is love indifferent? Well, I don't know. If you're going to love your spouse, you better not be indifferent toward them. Is love indifferent? What about your children whom you love? When they go astray or they do wrong? If your child does something wrong, are you like, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. No, love is not indifferent. Well, think about God's perfect love. He's not indifferent. No, he's a God of wrath because of unrighteousness, unholiness, and transgression against his perfect law. Children of wrath by nature because of what we are. Now, the implications and applications of this are massive. Let me just give you a few. By the way, at 5.15, we have a discussion called Table Talk where we drink some coffee and we're going to talk about some of the sermon. What we're going to talk about in there today is essentially how this impacts evangelism and you sharing your testimony. So if you want to talk about sharing your testimony or how this reality affects evangelism, that'll be 515. But, but for now, let me just get to the more pressing matters. The most pressing matter about this reality is you must be born again. You must be born again. Or in the words of the Bible, regenerated. That which is dead must be made alive. That which is dead must be raised up. You must be born again. That which was old must, be, must die. And you must be made something new. And that's, again, part of the good news of the gospel. And for this, there is a necessity of divine intervention. That's why we pray. We desi- divine intervention to save is absolutely essential. Because of this horrible reality. Just some good advice is not going to help a spiritually dead person. A person who's by nature a child of wrath is not going to be helped by just, well, here's a good plan for you. No, it's got to be the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And it's by the gospel that that life is given through Jesus Christ. You must be born again. You know, the things about this, what you see... In, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. By the way, if you're not a Christian, if this is true, this has massive implications on how you think about life. And I think you see this played out every day in the world, by the way. All through history, you see this played out. What is, what is history? History is just a conveyor belt of corpses, as one historian put it. It's just death after death after death after death. Well, that's quite negative, isn't it? Well, it's quite realistic, actually. History is a history of war. 
terrible realities. The world understands this and recognizes this. Philosophers have seen this all through their lifetime. But you know what the world does? The world offers insufficient explanations of it. The world recognizes there's something wrong here. And this is, this is something every world religion also recognizes, or typically. There's something wrong in the world. There's something terribly wrong here. Why is everything seemingly broken? Friends, I would just suggest to you the Bible offers the best explanation for that. That's why you should read and study the Word of God. People who read and study philosophers, what about the Word of God? Read it and study it. At least give it a, a, a reading. But the world offers insufficient and woefully inadequate explanations of the realities of life. Right? Like they're just, they're, these are psychological problems. There's something wrong with, with man's mind. Now, all of these I'm going to mention have some truth in them. There are things wrong with man's mind, and to s some more extent than others. Or it's his upbringing, right? Man, the way a person was brought up, that's why they act the way they do. There's some truth to that. Friends, there's just, more, there's just a deeper reality than that. There's a more severe reason why people commit sin and atrocities and evil than their upbringing or their psychology. Or maybe it's just their indoctrination. I like all the silly attempts to explain why the Nazis did what they did. Silly explanations, many of them. How, a hu how one human being can put hundreds of other human beings in an in a, in a oven or a gas chamber. Well, it's just his indoctrination. He was trained to do that. There's got to be more to it than that. And there is. He's dead in his sins. He's following the course of this world. So because there's insufficient explanations, there's insufficient means to deal with these spiritual realities. Just a few of them. Moral uprightness. Well, if we can just train man to be better. Just use some behavior modification. Which again, there's some truth in it. You do have to engage in some behavior modification, right? Yeah. Kid, don't put the fork in the light socket. Some wisdom in that. But there's a deeper reality as to why man is what he is. More, or self-discipline. It's, it's a joke in my household because I tell my wife, oh, you know, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. And that, that statement for my wife has become an absolute joke. In fact, if you, go, you should go tell her, Chris is going to turn over a new leaf and she will laugh in your face. Because in my household, that means I'm going to start dieting, I'm going to start exercising. And it's sadly in my household just become a joke. Right? As if self-discipline can change what you are by nature. Self-discipline is important and it has a place, but it's, there's a deeper reality at work that causes us to be what we are. Or legislation, of course, they make laws, which they have to, praise God. Murder is illegal. But, but the fact that laws are in place and, and to some level probably are a deterrent doesn't change these realities. Or education, right? If we can just train people right, educate them right. Again, I love education. There's a lot of wisdom. I live for education. But that's not going to change this. Or finally, what's common in our world too, religious practices. Right? For some people, for some, taking the Lord's Supper is the way you get grace and get forgiveness. And doing this act is going to somehow change you and save you. Or some other religious practice, whatever it is, go to church, give money, what, whatever. All that's insufficient because man is dead in his trespasses. 
and sins. He must be born again. This is why the message of the church is so important and why you should be passionate for it and thankful for it. We, we have the one message that can change and does change people. The message of the gospel. This, a person must be born again. That's the only way a person is really going to change. It's through being born again. That's the, that's the only way a person's eternity is going to be altered. That's, that's the only power that can overcome something so real as we see here. Which again is what this passage is about. So it's so a beautiful spring day or fall day out there. Right, we're all enjoying the weather a bit. David said this morning, you know, people, there's just a bit of, there's a little more pep in people's step this morning. Good observation, David. And then you come in here and you hear this. And it can be a bit disconcerting, can it? But it shouldn't be. And here's why. Here's the point. Look at the next verses. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. You see, this picture, this very real depraved picture of man magnifies the goodness of God. It, it, it helps you see the gravity of God's grace. And it should cause us to praise him with renewed vigor. That's the point of this vivid horrible description about the reality of man and what we were. Paul here unmasks the reality of what mankind is before God so that we would magnify Christ and his grace. He also did this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and this is our closing. 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at how Paul explains his salvation. This is his testimony. 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the way, all those words are present here. Mercy, love, grace, faith. It's good news. It's good news. And it's how we're delivered from that spiritual death. And it's because of Christ and through Christ. And it's, it's him that we remember when we take the Lord's Supper together. Again, we take the Lord's Supper because it's pictured as in the Scripture. It's commanded by Jesus Christ. Baptists, historically, called it, we call it an ordinance because it was ordained by Jesus Christ. That's where that word comes from. Something ordained in the Bible. So we want to do what the Bible says. And we see in 1 Corinthians 11, it's when the church comes together is where we see the Lord's Supper taking place. When the church comes together, and we see very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11, as often as you do it, you do it in remembrance of me. It's what Jesus Christ said. That as we take the, the, the bread and the cup, the call is to remember Jesus Christ. And isn't that important? To remember him in this busy world and sinful world that we live in to remember Jesus Christ. It's a call to remember. It's, it's, it's the church that takes the Lord's Supper. People a lot of times have questions, should I take the Lord's Supper or not? Well, if you're not a Christian, today you should take Jesus Christ. You should believe in him. You should turn from your sins and turn to Jesus, and he'll by mercy forgive you. But if you are a Christian, you should take the 
the bread and the cup. But because of what it signifies, what it calls to remember, there's a seriousness that goes about it that calls for our repentance. It's a good time to repent of our sins. In fact, the scripture says, let a man examine himself and then so eat. So we examine ourselves. It's a time for us to to have a a period of self-examination. So while these brothers, these deacons, are passing out the bread and the cup, you should examine yourself. Because there's a danger of eating and drinking condemnation under yourself. It's not just a cup and a cracker. It's not just a cup and a cracker because of what is remembered. The death of Jesus Christ, his body and his blood, which incidentally the scripture says was given for you. Meditate on that. Jesus gave his body and his blood for you. If you're not a Christian, trust in Jesus. Essentially for kids, I'll just say we leave this up to the families. I was a child, I took the Lord's Supper when I shouldn't have. I I wish I wouldn't have. If you're a child and you've not believed the gospel, you you should believe the gospel today. You should talk to one of the pastors here after the service, and we'll talk to you about being baptized and being part of the church, which is the normal Christian life. So you take Christ today. But if you're here and you're a Christian, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you should examine yourself and then take of the Lord's Supper. So let me invite the deacons to come forward and you examine yourself as they're passing out the bread and the cup.